You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, we are in the Advent season, the Christmas time, and it is a wonderful, how shall I say this, interruption into the normal warp and woof of my life, the normal frequency and the normal uh, program that I build for myself. I don't know if you're anything like me at all, but I have a tendency to sort of construct for myself a bit of predictability, sort of a regimen in which I'm pretty well familiar with how my day is going to go, of the relationships I'm going to have, of the people I'm going to encounter. I kind of like things, by and large, the way they are. And I get to have this sort of fabricated sense of control. Like I'm actually responsible for how my day is going to go. And yet there are always, almost every day, these wonderfully blessed interruptions. And I think chief among them is the entire Christmas season where the normalcy and the trajectory of humankind is interrupted strangely by the incarnation of God as he becomes human. That's what Christmas does, is it forces us to now start watching TV commercials about new Mercedes in our driveway in October. But that's, of course, not what the Christmas season is all about. The Christmas season is about how God interrupted our age by becoming like that which he wanted to save. It's a wonderful interruption to show us the surprising grace to which God will go to, to save for himself a people. And so we're looking these Sundays since Thanksgiving at surprising grace. And sort of the structure and the framework we're using to help us understand God's surprising grace is the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew's going to tell us about five women. In the genealogy, there are four, but of course, at the end, we'll meet Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he's going to tell us about four surprising women who were at the very bottom of the barrel, who were the the last ones we would expect God to have any interaction with. But God is going to tell us something, that he will go to the absolute ends and the extents of the human condition. There is no limit beyond which God's grace cannot, will not go. So I want to read from Matthew chapter 1, the very first chunk of Matthew's genealogy, to meet these women, these surprising recipients of his grace, of his unmerited favor and blessing. So Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, Matthew's trying to make a point that Jesus is the rightful king. He is the heir of the line of David, who is to be the Savior and the Lord of Israel. It is Jesus, and he's also the son of Abraham. But it's in that order because Matthew has a point. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and God strikes covenant with Abraham. And we see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant. He has come, and now all the nations can be blessed. All the nations can have proximity and nearness to God. This is who this Jesus is. But he, oh, he comes in a surprising way. Oh, he's the king, all right. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. But he's not what you expect. Verse 2, he, uh, Abraham was the father of Isaac, 
Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. Well, we met Judah last week, and without rehashing the gory details, Judah has relations with his daughter-in-law. You thought your Christmas holiday was weird. He is seduced, and she's a deceiver because he's a deceiver and all of these things, and he's not a very upstanding man of character, and yet he is the one through whom God will produce Messiah. Judah and his brothers, and Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This Canaanite woman who was damaged goods. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon. Remember that name, that's significant. And Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab. We'll talk about her this morning. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of a dead guy named Uriah. She doesn't even get named. I love the shocking nature of this surprising grace. You would expect, if you're going to give the lineage of the king of a nation, you would include the wonderful matriarchs. You would include Sarah wife of Abraham. You would include Rebekah, wife of Isaac. You would include Rachel, the apple of Jacob's eye. But no, no. We get two Canaanites, a Moabite, and a Hittite. Ugh. And from there, we're going to get the king of kings and the lord of lords, who was the king of the Jews, someone whose mamas were Canaanites, Moabite, and a Hittite. Oh, you betcha. What we find in studying these women, why we're studying these women at Advent, is they teach us some aspect of the Christ onto which we can latch and put all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust, all of our life. We see that Tamar, though she was questionable in her actions, she trusts that God will provide through Judah the Messiah. Even though she's a Canaanite from the outside, God will provide his promised Messiah through the line of Judah. She trusts that. This morning we'll talk about Rahab. She trusts that God will provide the conqueror. He will provide that which must come in by conquest and defeat the enemies. And a man named Joshua. We meet a woman named Ruth who ultimately trusts that God will provide a redeemer and God does so through a man named Boaz. We meet a woman named Bathsheba that Matthew simply calls Uriah's wife who trusts that God will ultimately provide what this world needs through a king, through her lineage. And God does. And finally, we'll meet a woman named Mary who trusts that God will provide a son through Jesus. The Advent season is to help us see the glory, the immense nature of the coming of Christ, that he is Messiah, that he is conqueror, that he is redeemer, that he is king, that he is son. So this morning, I want us to remember that as we're studying about Rahab. The stories are relatively familiar to all of us, or at least many of us, but I don't want us to miss the fact that God is telling us something, that Jesus, even his lineage, comes from a trajectory of wreckage, and he is by no means ashamed of any of it. So we've been talking about the big idea for this entire Advent series. It is for today, and it will be for the rest of our time together. It's simply this. Sin, though it is huge, sin is no match for God's grace. There is an incredible list of 
graphic, appalling sin in our Bible. And none of it is any match whatsoever for the grace and the kindness and the covenant-keeping love and the unmerited favor and the unmerited mercy that God gives to those who are his. We learn over and over from cover to cover that it is not morals that saves a single human soul. It is surprising grace. And, blessedly, it is not immorality that disqualifies a single human soul. It is surprising grace that saves. So I want us this morning to talk about the story of Rahab. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. I would love to spend weeks and weeks and weeks in Joshua chapter 2. We're not going to do that. We're just going to walk right through the text, and by the time we're done, it might feel like you've been in here for weeks and weeks and weeks, but I'm going to try to just read the text, add some commentary, and then we'll see why this text is here, how it applies to us here and now today, and what we're supposed to do with it. So, Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, let me, let me pause. Let me make sure I'm clear about this. This is Joshua, son of Nun. He is not Joshua, the son of a nun. That would be weird. Nuns don't exist in those days, okay? Nun, by the way, is the Hebrew word for fish. Joshua, son of fish. That's kind of weird. But many, many Hebrew names are actually named for animals. You might remember the story of Deborah and Barak. Deborah in Judges is honeybee. And there's a story of Jael who kills Cicero. Jael means little deer or ibex, and Cicero means horse. And so these stories in Hebrew where the the little deer kills the horse and the bumblebee leads the armies of God. You might remember the story of Joshua and Caleb who go out to spy the land. And Caleb, if some of you are named Caleb or you have a son or a friend that are named Caleb, Caleb in Hebrew essentially means dog boy. Name for a dog. That's usually kind of Leah, sweet, sweet Leah. It means cow. (laughs) Often people in Hebrew settings were named after animals because animals were kind of like part of the family. They sort of showed some character. So I don't know what it means that Joshua's dad's name was Nun. He's fishy, perhaps. I don't think so. But this is kind of what's going on here. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly. So what's going on in the story? Moses has died. Moses has been faithful to God, and God has buried his friend Moses in the valley at the foot of Mount Nebo. We do not know where. And Joshua has now emerged as God's chosen leader for the nation of Israel. Joshua will be the tip of the spear that leads Israel across the Jordan River from the east into the promised land that he will take by conquest. Joshua, whose name means God saves has to be told three times to be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, which probably means that he was not. (laughs) I love how we often depict Joshua, that he's wearing a sleeveless shirt with a headband, and he's all swole. No, probably not. Probably very timid and scared spitless. And yet here he finds himself, but Joshua is apparently a good learner. He's teachable. He's learned something important. It says, the text tells us, that he sends two men secretly. They're spies. Now, you might remember that 40 years previously, 
40 years earlier, Joshua and Dog Boy had been sent the company of 12 spies to scout out the land. Ten of them come back and say, it's scary, we can't take them. It's too, it's too much of a task. We don't think this is going to work. And Joshua and Dog Boy say, let me in, Skipper, we can take them. We can do this. But the people of Israel say no in fear. They do not trust that God's promise will prevail. And so they act in faithlessness. And so for their error, they get to take laps in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of faithless ones dies off. God raises up a new generation led by Joshua, and he's about to bring them into the land, but he cuts right to the chase. He's not going to waste his time with 12 spies this time because that's a little unwieldy. He just goes for two. He sends in two spies, and he sends them from Shittim as spies. That's 12 miles to the east of Jericho, across the Jordan River, just 12 miles east. He says, go and view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho is a significant city. It's a strategic city. It is sort of the border city that protects the land of Canaan from all that which is to the east. You cross the Jordan River, you're right there at Jericho. And Jericho is a massively important city. It is the oldest walled city in the world. Some archaeology says it's 11,000 years old. Some archaeology says it's 13,000 years old. Either way, it's old. It is a very low city, the lowest city in the world. But if you're going to go into Canaan, you have to come through Jericho. And even in this day, it was a mighty city. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And they lodged there. Dun, dun, dun. Let me explain. In American literature, or literature of the 20th and 21st century, we like to tell stories that work like this. Here's the main idea, here's a bunch of details, and then here's the main idea again. That's kind of how we do it in the West. That's not how they tell stories in antiquity. In biblical literature and in literature from antiquity, they'll usually tell a story, and the middle piece is the main point. Everything else at the front and everything else at the back or at the bottom, is details that supports the main idea. So you can sort of think of Joshua chapter 2 as this spirit-inspired sandwich. And so we're going to take Joshua chapter 2 in three different chunks. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and that's sort of some bread and some trimmings. And then we're going to look at verses 15 through 24, and those are the back half or the bottom half of the bread and the trimmings. And then at the end, we'll look at verses 8 through 14. That's the meat. That's the center. That's the whole point of the narrative of Joshua chapter 2. That's what's going on. Now, we're being set up to really have some intense fear. Some, oh no, how is this going to go? This is a story that parents were supposed to have told their children. The two spies going to Jericho. <gasps> Ooh, Jericho, that's the, the heart, the capital of Canaanite idolatry and pagan worship. It's where the bad guys are centered. There's got a big scary wall there. And the two spies, not 12 of them, just two, they go in. Now, no doubt, these two spies were doing their best. They probably got rid of their Hebraic Jewish clothes. They probably tried to put on some Jericho uh, costumes. They tried to alter their appearance. They probably tried to use Jericho accents, the whole bit. And they go in, probably in the evening time, before the gates of the city are closed. You always close the gates of the city at sunset to protect the people inside. They go in, and they go immediately to the house of a prostitute. Now, for thousands of years of Bible teaching, 
People have tried to clean that up a little bit because it's a little bit icky. We don't like to say that, you know, the two good guys went into the house of a, <clears throat> of a prostitute. Maybe, maybe she's just like an innkeeper. Or maybe this is just like an ancient Airbnb kind of a deal. Like she's got fresh seeds, she's got some little Keurig stuff out, and then she's going to be down the street. Call her if you need anything. No, 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 no. She is Zahan. <gasps> there I said it. It's a, it's a wordy dirt in Hebrew. She's a Zahan. She's a prostitute. She makes money the old-fashioned way. She earns it. No way to soften it. She is what she is. And yet, this is the land of Canaan 3,500 years ago. Prostitution and harlotry were normative. I know it's hard for us to think that's okay. But listen, marriages were a different kind of institution in those days. Christianity revolutionizes the institution of marriage, where Paul says sex is for a husband and a wife. That was revolutionary. In those ancient contexts, prostitution was a normative part of city life. And this is where people would have come to stay as they were traveling through as merchants or on other business, and they would have swapped information there's no Marriott's, no Hilton's back in those days, and so this is just where weary travelers go, and it's a normal practice. And so these two guys, hoping and assuming they can just sort of arrive unnoticed, unseen amongst all the other riffraff, will be undetected. And they find themselves at the house of a woman named Rahab. Dun, dun, dun. See, by this time, the name Rahab has already meant something for a thousand years. By the time of Joshua, the name Rahab has already appeared in the book of Job. It's already appeared in the book, uh, it'll later it'll appear in the book of Isaiah, referring to ancient legends. Rahab uh, is another name for a dreaded sea monster. <laughs> so if your, husband, if your son comes home from college with a girl named Rahab, this is a bad Thanksgiving. The sea monster prostitute. This is not what you want to, to have in your family. It's the idea of a sea monster, destruction and desolation. In the book of Isaiah, Rahab is another name for Egypt because the name Rahab means insolence or arrogance or conceitedness or haughtiness or pride. She represents all of the things that have always made Israel fall. This Rahab, this name is no accident. She is the embodiment of all things that are opposed to Israel. She is a strong, deviant woman. Look at all the times a Gentile pagan woman defeated the nation of Israel through sexual immorality. This is what happens in the book of Numbers over and over again. She also represents Canaan idolatry. That also frequently lays low the nation of Israel. This woman now is responsible for the safekeeping of these two spies. All of our hopes are hanging on her? What could possibly go right? Nothing. That's how we're supposed to read the story. Well, the plot thickens and the narrative continues. Verse 2, and it was told to the king of Jericho. <laughs> Wait, that's funny. See, see, these two guys are spies. And almost immediately, the king of Jericho is told that there's two spies there. They're not very good at this. They haven't even graduated the academy of, you know, Israeli, Israeli spy agency. And they're thrust into action, and they're immediately detected. That tells us a couple things. Number one, that they're not very good at spying. Number two, that security in Jericho was airtight. They were frightened. They knew, they knew who Israel was. They knew that just 12 miles to the east, millions of people are encamped. They see their campfires. They hear their livestock. They've heard the stories. 
So Jericho is on high alert. The king of Jericho, the king, uh, the word is melech. He would have been like a mayor, not like a grand empire ruler, but more like a mayor, someone who has control of the, of the city security force. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. He understands why they're there. He already feels threatened, but this is a fascinating passage. We're being prepared for something here. Unbeknownst to Rahab, unbeknownst to the king, unbeknownst to Joshua and the two spies, Rahab has been prepared in advance for such a time as this. This guy is the king. He could come with his jackbooted thugs and kick in the door, ransack her place, take all of her stuff, and seize her guests. But he doesn't. He sends a messenger. We're being taught that though she is a woman of ill repute, she has some significant affluence and influence. He's not making demands by force. He's saying, hey, you've got somebody with you. I, I need to see them. It's really an interesting interchange. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from, lie number one. Number two, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, lie number two. I do not know where the men went. Lie number three, pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Lie number four. Now, many people have gotten totally wrapped around the axle and have missed the point completely. But remember, we're still in the bread and the lettuce. That ain't the meat yet. Is this passage a defense that it's okay to lie at some times? No, it's not the point of the passage at all. The narrator of, the script of this passage has no interest in condoning lying. Should she have lied or should she have not? I don't know. She does lie, and so we get to we miss out on seeing what other supernatural means God would have used to protect them. But she's a Canaanite, idolater. She's outside the covenant blessing of the recipients of the law of Moses. Lying is just what happens when you open your mouth and sound comes out. This is what Canaanites do. This is what wickedness begets. This is totally normative for her. This is not the scriptures telling us it's okay to lie. It's not saying that. It's saying this is the context into which the hope of the world has now come. So she tells all of these lies. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. The text is telling us something. She's not just got some extra straw up there. There are stalks of flax that are bound together and laid in order. Oh, Rahab. She's not just a prostitute. She's also industrious. She's got some agrarian industry to her. Her and her family, apparently, are also harvesting flax. What do you do with flax? Well, you take the seeds, and you crush that, and that makes oil. And then you take the fibers of the flax, and you soften it with the oil of the seeds, and you bind all that together, and that makes rope. Hmm, what a dink! She happens to be a prostitute who just so happens knows how to make rope. I wonder if that might possibly come in handy. I guess we'll see. Verse 7. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So she does the old misdirection, rope-a-dope. She says, you can still catch them. They went that away. And she points east toward the Jordan, and they all saddle up, and boom, 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 boom. there they go. They ride after these guys, and the gate is shut. Well, things just went from bad to worse, because now the two spies are trapped inside they're, they're in the Death Star. This is very bad. How do you get out of the Death Star? 
You can't just hit the escape hatch. You go, no, no, they're trapped inside. The gates are shut, and the bad guys are shooting after them to the east and to the west, and we're left with a cliffhanger. And then the writer of Joshua is going to tell us something really fantastic in verses 8 to 14, but we're going to hold off on that for a moment, and we're going to deal with some more lettuce and some bread. So now we fast forward to verse 15, and we find out what's going to happen with these two guys. So now Joshua chapter 2 and verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. That's kind of a strange, seemingly redundant and repetitive thing. And not only that, but it says the same thing twice. Well, the literal is, she lived in the wall of the wall. What happens is, Jericho, as it's being built, has a city wall. And it's good and it's strong. But as Jericho grows in resources and affluence and influence, they build a second wall outside the first wall. And they leave a gap or a void between the two walls. And in that gap, sometimes people would, they would pile debris and rubble in there to make it really, really, really strong and thick and an impregnable kind of a wall. But after a serious amount of time where no attacks have taken place, the people of the city looking for a place to live would claw and scratch through and they would dig out the rubble and the debris and they would make for themselves a home in between the two walls. And so we're learning that Rahab lives in the wall of the wall. This is not the best part of town, but it just so happens that this woman, who just so happens to be named arrogance, insolence, haughtiness, and pride, who is also the resemblance of Egypt and a sea monster, and is a prostitute, and is a Canaanite idolater, she's the hope of the world. Again, what could possibly go right? But she lives in the wall of the wall, verse 15. She let them down through a rope through the window. She just so happens to have a house that... Huh, has a breach in the city wall that has a window. Apparently, she has been accommodated a good number of favors here. For her house was built in the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. She told the pursuers, the cops, to go south and east. That's where the Jordan River is. That's where the Dead Sea is. And she tells them, Go north and west. Now, if you stand in Jericho, been there, you can see this. The, the hills around Jericho to the north and west rise to an elevation of about 1,500 feet. No, it's not like the Colorado Rockies, but they're low hills, but they're all made of limestone. And so they're pocked with all these different caves that it would be very easy to hide in and amongst. Now, what she's telling them is to go further into the land of Canaan, farther away from their own country that is encamped 12 miles to the east. So they have to trust her. This could all be a trap. She tells them to go north and west, further into the land, while all the other people are going to stay in the city, and then the pursuers are going to follow them off to the east to the Jordan River. Verse 17, the men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down and you shall gather into your house your father and mother your brothers and all your father's household then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless but if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house his blood shall be on our head now let me comment on that for just a moment Many times, people have read the story in Joshua 2 of the scarlet cord being hung out the window, and they try to very quickly go to the blood of Christ on the cross. Well, hold on. That's a hasty error. 
what's happening is we're, we're intended by the reading of Joshua to look back, not forward. We are supposed to be looking back to the time of the Passover in Egypt, in Rahab, where because of the sin and the idolatry and the refusal of Egypt to say who God really is, there is judgment and destruction that comes upon them. And the people of Israel are still there when judgment comes. But if they will take a pure and spotless lamb, kill it, and take its blood and smear it over the doorpost, they will create a safe space over which death and destruction will pass. They don't get removed from it. They are protected in the midst of it. There's a safe space. And so what we're seeing is just like with Moses in the Passover, now with Joshua, there will be a scarlet cord on an exit that will create for them a safe space. Yes, of course, we can look forward and see that in the cross of Christ. Christ creates a safe space in which those who are in Christ are hidden and protected in him when judgment comes. But it's a similar common theme. We see this in Noah's Ark. It is a safe space that protects the faithful while judgment sweeps over the land. We get to see that Rahab, of all the unusual suspects, is providing the safe place for the people of Israel. It's preparing us for something that will follow. Now then, verse 20. But if the spies tell her, but if you tell this business of ours, and she's thinking, as if I have to tell anybody, everybody knows you're here, losers. Then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath and that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I love that. She did something. She did something as a demonstration of her faith. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. They trusted her. Why would they trust her? Why would they do that? We'll find that out in a moment. They remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. These guys were in it all the way to the end, all three days. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Fish. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Rahab is good to her word. This sea monster, Egypt-like, haughty, Canaanite prostitute. <laughs> and yet she is good to her pledge. Why? Why would she do this? Well, for that, we have to go to the meat of the passage. Beginning in verse 8, we're going to learn why Rahab has this experience. Verse 8. Before the men lay down, so this gives us a little bit of a clue that they were not there to take part in her offerings, if you will. The men are laying down up on the roof, and she comes up to see them. And she says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How does she know that? Because she is a broker of information. She is a hub of news that is passed around. And faith comes by hearing. She has heard all that God has done. She says, I know uh, that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. <laughs> Where did the dudes, the two spies, get what they told Joshua? They were quoting Rahab. I think that's awesome. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt. 
I've heard people say, well, you know, the Exodus, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, not really, probably not. That's just sort of a, a euphemism or a metaphor for something else. Not according to the people of Jericho. According to the people of Jericho and Canaan, they understood and believed that, yes, God literally had the children of Israel cross the Red Sea on dry land and brought them to the east of Jordan area. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Do you hear what she's saying? I have heard and I believe that your God is a God who brings justice and a God who brings salvation. He saved his people by bringing them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into this land. And he devoted to destruction those who did not recognize him as God. This is what Rahab is saying, verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then Joshua 2, 11b. One of the sweetest verses in the Old Testament. Make a note here, asterisk or underline. Because this is what she says, For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is Rahab's personal confession of who God is. Let me just remind you that it just so happens that her name is Rahab. Insolence and arrogance. She's a Canaanite idolater, a prostitute. And yet here, she uses the covenant-keeping name of God. She says, For I know that Yahweh is El. Yahweh is is God. What is she saying? I am now willing to betray all of my countrymen, all of my people, all of my nation, the false gods that I have been a part of worshiping, but something inside of me was telling me that this was not real. Your God, the covenant-keeping name of God, Yahweh, He is God in the heavens and everything beneath on the earth. There is but one God. This is her personal confession. And because of what she believes, it prompts her to act. To not act on what one believes is to crucify the mind. We have to act on what we believe, or we don't really believe what we say we do. But clearly she does in verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Rahab. Was she deceitful? Was she a liar? Yes. But you know why Rahab is so commended? Because she practices the ancient Near Eastern custom of hospitality. She shows hospitality. That custom was inviolable. If someone is a guest in your home, even if they are your mortal enemy, you protect them with your own life. This is what Lot does in Genesis 19, when by faith he shows hospitality to two angels in the town of Sodom. Yes, lying is bad, but apparently not showing hospitality in the eyes of God is an even more egregious offense. She has shown them kindness, and because of that kindness, look what happens. Verse 13, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So, yes, this is a little bit weird. She's a working prostitute who has all of her extended family living with her. That's kind of weird. But again, this is Canaan 3,500 years ago. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours. And when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
these guys have utter confidence that Yahweh will do what he has promised to do. Verse 15, then she let them down by a rope, not the same rope as the scarlet cord, that's different, through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. She has been commanded to, to, to maintain a safe space so that when destruction comes, they will be spared. There is no question that Rahab represents all the sin and the depravity and the debauchery of Canaan in the age. But her sin is no match for God's grace. It's true of Rahab. It's true for us. This is why she is in the lineage of Jesus. So what are we to learn from Joshua 2? Why are we studying this passage at Advent? I just want to give you three very quick application points. There's a whole lot more that we could say, but I'll keep this as brief as I can. Three very quick application points. Number one, trusting God to be faithful in the big picture looks like obeying him in the small picture. This text is the answer to the yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but experience that we all have and we all go through. Rahab doesn't just say she believes that God is God. She does something based on her confession, do you see? She does something. She harbors the spies. She puts the cord out her window, putting her own life and that of her family at risk. And so Christmas, it's the perfect time to be reminded and to be reflective on what God has done in Christ. Just like in the time of Rahab, the stage was set at the time of Christ to enter into a context that could scarcely have been worse Jesus enters in a defenseless, vulnerable baby under the reign of a megalomaniac named Herod who had all the resources and means to put to death every male child of that age. Into that context where it looks like what could possibly go right, Jesus comes. And Scripture is telling us over and over again that we are not in control, but that God is working through means of which we are probably not even aware we say we trust God, but then we try to control all of our environment. It's above and beyond our pay grade. We are simply to be obedient and faithful in our day-to-day -day lives and trust that God will bring about whatever plan he has through means that we do not get to describe or dictate. And just to make sure that we really understand this, God brilliantly makes one of the mothers of Jesus to be this Canaanite prostitute named Rahab. He had been working on her heart and preparing her to believe. And she trusted in the promise that God would conquer the land. The very seedy culture in which she lived and that she was a contributor to, something was apparently going on in her heart that she says, I don't want to be a part of this. I need conquest. I need rescue and release from the sin and the stink that is around me that I myself have created. She needs a conqueror. And we know she believed God because of what she did. She was faithful. And in fact, the New Testament brilliantly includes her not once but twice as a picture of faith. In James chapter 2, verse 25, it says this, And in the same way was, also, was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. In other words, Rahab demonstrated her faith by doing what her faith demanded. Not only that, but in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She showed hospitality. 
She was open and available to those who were outside her normative home existence. Philoxenoi, showing compassion to those who are strange to you, who might not be like you, who might not look like you, who might not vote like you, treating them as if they are family. Some of you are brilliantly gifted at hospitality. Do not think for a nanosecond that it does not matter because it does. Now, speaking of how James and Hebrews refer to Rahab, the prostitute, this brings me to my second point. It's as follows. Belief transforms our brokenness into brilliance. This is what being in Christ does. It does not remove the things of our backstory as if they never happened. It redeems them, that they are now a part of our story for his glory. That's what it means to be in Christ. I think it's fascinating that Rahab is not once but twice referred to as Rahab, the innkeeper. No, Rahab, the chick that protected Israel's spies. No, Rahab, the Zahan, the prostitute. Because a part of her baggage has become brilliance when united with God's providence and grace. It's not generally what comes to mind when we think of guys like Abraham and Moses and David. We like to think of how they were when they were being obedient. But Abraham was a liar. Moses had a rage problem. David was an, an adulterer and a murderer. But at the end of the story, Rahab is still referred to as the prostitute, as a reminder that her wreckage God transforms into brilliance for his story. She had every opportunity to be an object of his wrath, but he, by grace, transforms her into a trophy of her grace. (laughs) That's my story, by the way. And not only that, Rahab reminds us that when we have wreckage in our past and God redeems that, that that story is always for God's glory and to reach into the heart of another because you can just about guarantee that someone else is going through the same experience from which you have been delivered, and you get to be the testimony of God's surprising grace. What I think is astonishing is that many of us, many of us, have gone through seasons of sin and dysfunction and wreckage, and we think perhaps we've gone beyond the reach of God's grace. Rahab reminds us that we have not. And I just want to remind all of us that she is recorded in the genealogy of Jesus as a testimony that God is not ashamed of Rahab. Brings me to the third point. Everyone believes something about God. Everyone believes something about God. In this chapter, Joshua 2 reminds us of that. Clearly, the spies believed something about God. They believed that God would make good on his promise when God gives us the land. Rahab believed something about God, that he was sovereign in the heavens and on the earth, and there was no place where he was not sovereign, and she acted accordingly. But even the other people of Canaan believed something about God. They believed that he was not the one true God. To their destruction, everybody believes something about God. Your atheist friends, your agnostic co-workers, your really bizarre nephew, yeah, Everybody believes something about God. The question is what? And the more convicting and immediate question is, what do I believe about God? Failure to understand and recognize that there is one true God who exists eternally in three persons, make no mistake, renders us eligible for the destruction that that failure to understand produces. And so we wanted to give a very practical takeaway and a little help 
Everybody believes something about God, but it is my sense that most people, even in the church, have never taken the time to think and pray and discuss with family and friends and to write down their personal confession of who God is. And so we decided to just give you ours. If you've gotten a copy of one of these, it should have been on your chair when you walked in. If you don't have one, find someone slower and weaker than you and take theirs. And Or no, maybe there's some empty chairs that haven't been taken yet. The three campus pastors, Ross at our South Campus, Mark in White House, and me here downtown, we just took a stab at saying, hey, this is my confession. This is my personal admittance of who God is. This is not a fully orbed systematic theology with all the facets of soteriology and the doctrine of angels and eschatology and demons. No, 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 no. This is just like Rahab's confession in Joshua 2.11b. This is my confession. So I'm going to read you mine. Mine goes like this. There is a God, and he is sovereign, meaning that he does as he pleases, and what pleases him is to be good to me all the time, whether or not I recognize or appreciate it. In spite of all the many reasons I have given him not to love me, he does. He works through me for his glory because of the finished work of his son and indwells me by his spirit. His grace surprises me daily. And you can read Ross's, you can read Mark's, but more than that, just as examples, as models, I hope that you will think and pray, discuss with someone you know and love and trust, and you will write yours down. I'm not asking you to frame this, or maybe you do, maybe you put it on your refrigerator, but that you will write your confession of God. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Because that confession will drive and dictate and determine your daily actions, just like Rahab's. I think that's why she's in the genealogy of Jesus, to remind us of the lengths to which God has gone. Sin is no match for God's grace. All of these women that we'll study this season in this series have something in common. They are part of God's plan to redeem man to himself and to one another. Now, we read earlier the story of the genealogy of Jesus. We met a guy named Nashon. Nashon shows up in the book of Numbers. He's called a prince or a chief of the people of Israel. Nashon has a son. His name is Salmon. Now, we're not told this explicitly, but my sense from the text is that it's very likely. This is not dogmatic. I don't know for sure, but it seems to me that very likely Salmon is one of the two spies that goes into Jericho and that stays with Rahab. What we find out later is that Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute, idolater, destructive, arrogant, woman who represents all of the enemies of Israel is now wedded into the line, the princely line of Nashon. She marries this guy named Salmon, and they have together a son named Boaz, who himself marries a foreigner. Gee, I wonder where he learned that. She gets to be a part of the redemptive thread that God weaves through all of this. She has no hope. But she's heard of a man named Yeshua, Joshua, who will come from the east to conquer and destroy all of her enemies. The thing that she needs deliverance from the most is herself, and Joshua, Yeshua, will do it. He is the conqueror that she's been awaiting. And I find that just like I am in so many ways, am Tamar, I'm also Rahab, a product of my own situation, the tendency to follow after my own flesh, and yet I eagerly await Yeshua, who will come from the east and will finally one day utterly destroy all of the enemies of this world. 
And in the meantime, <laughs> I have to wait well for this conqueror that will come. You see, we find out the story continues in Joshua chapter 6. You know the story. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a what? Tumbling down, you betcha. But not all at once. The children of Israel cross the Jordan River. They come into the land, and they surround Jericho, and they walk around, and there she sits with her little red cord hanging out the window, watching them as they parade past. And then nothing happens. They just leave. Can you imagine her fear? Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. What are they doing? Where are they going? Next day, here they come again, walking around. Today's the day. Today's the day. But she waits faithfully, and nothing happens. This happens over and over and over again. And finally, they march around the seven times. The cry goes up. The walls come a-tumbling down, but not hers. Her act of faithfulness has provided a safe space, a covering for her and her family, just like the cross of Christ. What you do in this world matters. If you're here this morning, I just want to remind you that we get to come as Gentiles, probably most of us, and we get to cling to this Jewish man who will be revealed as the Messiah, as the conqueror, as the redeemer, as the king, and as the son. We call that the bride of Christ, just like these two Canaanites, a Moabite and a Hittite, it's the church. It's our story, too. That's why we study this at Advent. And I'm just going to say, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I invite you to believe against all reason and logic and understanding that you would just believe that the story of the Bible is making it clear from cover to cover that sin is no match for God's grace. And that is our greatest need, to be delivered from our own sin, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. I dare you. Or I, I double-dog dare you at Christmas to ask God if it's true that he sent his son to save you. And for the rest of us who are believers, who have perhaps gotten caught up in all of the busyness and all of the burden of life, that we would confess who God is and that we would live accordingly because that's what this world needs so desperately, that we would be about creating safe spaces. Let me pray for you. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. Father, I pray that you will continue to make for yourself a people Against all odds, when it seems like there is nothing that could possibly go right, you prevail. Though the stage is set for evil to win, you prevail. Though my life is often a flaming wreckage, you prevail. That sin is no match for your grace. So God, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that they would step out of death into life, that they would confess that you alone are God. And that all of us, Father, would live accordingly. We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks again so much for being with us. I want to continue to say Merry Christmas. We're so glad that you're here. If you're visiting, we would love for you to drop off that card in the folder box. We'd love to get the chance to meet you. Let me ask you to all stand for word of benediction, and we will be dismissed. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you all Advent long. May he cause his face to shine upon you and may you reflect it. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. 
Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.